Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. Making our way through 1 Timothy 3, we have seen already the qualifications of an elder. We have seen in Scripture that some churches had more than one, some only had one, depending on the need and depending on the number of qualified men. And let me just add this, that the need in the church of Jesus Christ is great. The need in the church of Jesus Christ is high. But the amount of men truly qualified that meet the standards set forth in the Word of God is limited. We also saw that a biblical shepherd of God's people must be able to teach the Word of God, must oversee the work of the ministry, and be involved in the work of shepherding the church of God. This morning, we move to the subject of deacons. Now, I do not want you to tune out this morning. I do not want you to say, well, we're just talking about deacons, so I'm going to check out and not listen. Because first of all, here's what I would contend. I would contend that what most Baptist churches in the state of Alaska have with deacons is nothing like what we see described in the Word of God. It's nothing like what we see described in the Word of God. And because second, this text is describing the call upon us all, every single person in this room, to be effective servants of God. Just a few years ago, a blunt and fictional satire piece was floating around on the Internet. It was written in the form of a news release, and it reported that Julie and Bob Clark were stunned when they received a letter from their church in July asking them to participate in the life of the church, or worship somewhere else. They basically called us freeloaders, says Julie. We were freeloaders, says Bob. In a trend that may signal rough times for wallflower Christians, the Faith Community Church of Winston-Salem has asked non-participating members to stop attending. No more Mr. Nice Church, says the executive pastor, who went on to say, bigger is not always better. Providing free services indefinitely to complacent Christians is not our mission. Freeloading Christians were straining the church's nursery and facility resources and harming the church's ability to reach the lost, says the pastor. When your bottom line is proclaiming life in Christ and the word of God, you get impatient with people who interfere with that goal. Faith Community sent polite but firm letters to families who attend church services and freebie events but never volunteer, never give, and do not get involved in other ministry. The church estimates that only half of its regular attendees have volunteered in the past three years, and a third have never given to the church. Before now, we made people feel comfortable and welcome and tried to coax them to give a little something in return, says a staff member. That's changed. We're done being the community nanny. And to the surprise of some people, the move to uninvite people from church has drawn a positive response from men in the community who like the idea of a in-your-face type church. I thought, a church that doesn't allow wimps, that rocks, says Bob Clark, who likes the church even more since they told him to get lost. It's satire. It's satire. 
But all good satire exaggerates reality to make a point, to make you think. What would happen if every member of the church was serious about living out their faith, becoming servants of Jesus Christ? What would happen if every one of us would stop coming to church with the question, what's in it for me, and start asking, how can I give or how can I serve? See, I believe the testimony of this church, our church, would change. I believe this church would be strong and we would be known for living out the love and grace of God in our lives if we came here with that attitude. The question is, what kind of servants do we need to be to help our church be all it can be for Jesus Christ? What does a true servant look like? One that makes a difference in the lives of of other people. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we see the Bible talks about the kind of servants that we desperately need here in this church. We'll start with 1 Timothy 3.8, and you'll notice that the text talks about deacons, but if you're not familiar with Greek, just know this. The word deacons just basically means servants. Servants. It says... Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. I will have you notice that the idea of having a Baptist church with a deacon board ruling over the church is completely foreign to the word of God. Look for it all you want in scriptures, you'll never find it. It's not in there. It reminds me a little bit of the boy who just got saved. He just received eternal life, and he sat on a bench in a church next to an old man who looked upset. And the little boy said to the man, Sir, do you need to get saved? And the man was kind of startled by this little boy confronting him like this. And he said with a firm voice, I will tell you, I've been a deacon in this church for over 30 years and a chairman of the deacons for 15 years. And the boy just responded, sir, it don't matter what you've done. God will still save you. <laughs> Sad, but true. Sad, but true. There are some deacons in some of these Baptist churches that need this message. See, I've, I've met some that have been on deacon boards for years before they even realized their need for a savior. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace of what has become of the deacon ministry in churches today. The New Testament describes pastors, overseers for the equipping of the saints, and it describes deacons, servants of the church. But even these positions must meet basic qualifications. Now, Acts 6, you guys know this. Some of you already know this. But Acts 6 is the classic example. And no, the word of God does not specifically call them deacons in Acts. But it gives us the idea of the New Testament principle. So before we look in Acts 6, I want you to notice this in 1 Timothy 3.8. That the word for deacon comes from the Greek lemma diaconus. Diaconus, servant, one who ministers. And then let's look at Acts 6, 1. And I put the Greek word in there for you because it is related. 
And it says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution, diaconia, distribution, diaconia, service, ministry. You see, the church in Jerusalem was growing fast, really fast. I mean, really, really fast. Huge, we would say. Thousands were coming to know Jesus Christ. And the Jews who spoke Greek were complaining because some of the widows were being neglected. So I want you to look at the principle and catch this because it affects how we do church here. And this matters because this can weaken or strengthen the church. Watch it starting in verse 2. It says, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to what? Prayer and the ministry of the word of God. This changes everything. It should change the church of Jesus Christ today. This gets to the heart of the matter. See, pastors, just like the apostles, are supposed to be laboring in the word of God and laboring in prayer. And I'll tell you what, the reason some pastors have nothing more to say from the pulpit today is for one of several reasons. Either they're lazy or they don't want to offend or they have let people in the church today dictate what ministry is instead of letting the word of God define it. See, I'm not here to walk your dog. I'm not here to mow your lawn. I'm not here to wax your car. I know you were thinking that. You see that shine on my head, and you're thinking, this guy knows how to wax. It's not it. The pastor's job is to spend hours, countless hours, and I do spend countless hours, laboring in God's word and prayer. See, when I talk about this, I'm not even talking about this church, but pastors in the United States, pastors in this country are being driven nuts with the complaints and the comments and the text messages that put you down because the pastor wasn't always, always there for them when they went through every single little bump in life. No pastor can be. It's impossible. Or because the pastor didn't come over and help them with every little thing that they need. Now, most of you guys are really, really good about this and understand this already. But I am here to teach the word of God. That's my God-given job, to teach the word of God to the ones that want to receive it. And I'm here to counsel from the word of God. So follow the Bible. Help the church. Help us by allowing me to do what God has instructed me to do. Deacons, servants, are supposed to take on the role of ministering to widows and the physical needs of the church. But even that is limited in the Bible. Deacons are not to rule over the church on a board that they are unqualified to sit on. I want you to understand what is happening in churches today. See, when church members want the constant attention of the pastor, or when church members don't help serve, it puts an incredible load on a few families or on the pastor and his family, and it weakens and reduces his time to be able to be in the Word of God. And so therefore, you only got so much time in a week, it hurts the teaching of the church. 
And I believe Acts 6 was the beginning of the deacon ministry in the church of Jesus Christ. In the beginning, they served the genuine needs of of the church, the orphans, the widows, not able-bodied people. If you're able-bodied, don't call the church, start asking for help with stuff. It was widows and orphans. And this took the load off the apostles so they could minister in the word of God. And as the apostles moved on from history, the deacons kept the role and began to free up the pastors to teach the word of God. Now, the qualifications for ministry were high, but I will have you notice that the difference with a deacon is that nowhere does it say in the scriptures that they must be able to teach the word of God. It doesn't say that they have to be able to teach because it was not God's design for deacons to teach and it was not God's design for deacons to sit on these boards and rule over the churches. That's not biblical. They were supposed to serve so the pastors could teach. Dependable men, servants of the church, helping the work of the ministry. Deacons are not expected to teach, but they do need to qualify in how they live out their faith. Reverent, what does it mean? It means worthy of respect, aware of the presence and work of God in their lives, living it out. Not double-tongued, what does that mean? James tells us the tongue is the most difficult part of the body to control. Boy, did he understate that. The deacon is to work closely with the pastor and the people. He can't say one thing to the pastor and then say the opposite to the people that he serves. So just let your yes be yes and your no be no. He can't be a gossip, but deacon needs to be honest. See, when you're in contact with large numbers of people in ministry, you find out things that maybe you don't necessarily want to know or need to know, but the church does not need a gossip not given to much wine, not addicted to it, because the drink of the day in the first century was watered down wine. When deacons went in the homes, they would be offered it. A man given to much wine is a man that is not given to much dependence upon God. Amen? Not greedy, not using his office for shameful gain because the first deacons were involved in distributing help to widows. If someone has a problem with greed, you don't put them in charge of the money bag unless your name is Jesus and you have a sovereign plan to fulfill in the life of Judas. Not teachers, but look at verse 9, a great little verse. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Pure conscience. The deacon must be able to sustain the task of having a good witness before the church. This isn't that hard. I want you guys to think this through with me. In order, in order to have a good testimony in the local church, what does that mean? Well, it means you got to be a part of that local church for a while, right? This is why we let people intentionally sit on the bench for a while, getting to know their testimony, getting to know their walk in Jesus Christ. But some churches today don't even think that's important. Some Baptist churches out there are not only transferring members, but they transfer deacons right along with their membership. I know of a situation where a man was visiting a Baptist church, and at the conclusion of the sermon, the pastor extended one of these never-ending altar calls, and an invitation was given to come forward, and a family came down and sat in the front row, and the preacher went and whispered and talked quietly with them. Then he looked up and told the church, Bill and Mary Lou have just moved here from Tampa. All agree that they should be brought into membership, and the congregation said amen. Then followed another quiet talk, 
with the man. And the pastor then announces, Billy tells me he was a deacon in his old church. All agree that he'd be appointed a deacon here. And again, same exact response. And on that man's first visit to that church, he left as one of its deacons. No wonder churches have problems today. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. This is talking about holding on to the faith. So he doesn't have to have the gift of teaching, but he needs to understand and hold to the doctrines of the faith in Jesus Christ. A mystery in the Bible is something that was not known before, but has been now revealed by God. The mystery of faith is the divine program of God revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. It is the glorious truth of the death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. And the faith includes the gospel, but it also includes the doctrines of the faith handed down to the saints of God through the scriptures. See, the first century church didn't use bylaws. They used the Bible. They used the Bible. Radical concept. And a deacon that does not know the word of God cannot live out the word of God. So you got to know it before you can live it. A pure conscience means this person was washed by the washing of regeneration. And this person knows the daily cleansing of the word of God, knows what it is to walk in fellowship with God. This person's not a hypocrite. They're not perfect, but there's plenty of evidence that they walk with the Lord. Test them, Paul says, then let them serve as deacons. Not meant by Paul to be a formal test where you got to get out a scantron form and start circling bubbles. Not meant to be a class that you take, but test them. Let these men prove themselves. See, the deacon doesn't get to approve himself, just as no man gets to be a pastor without the approval of a local congregation. The church, the beautiful local church, the bride of Christ, must examine the life and doctrine of any man looking to serve. They must be blameless, meaning not guilty of doctrinal deviation from the scriptures, not guilty of immoral actions. And just like pastors, they should have their house in order. Verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Now, if you have studied this at all before, and I'm sure many of you have, you understand that there's two understandings out there today of verse 11. Because the word for wives can also be translated women, so some take this as a special office of female deacons. Others see this as the wives of deacons, which seems to make sense if you walk through this. Because I want you to notice in verses 12 and 13, the conversation picks up again about deacons. So if Paul was hypothetically listing out positions in the church, overseer, deacon, and then deaconess, you would think that he would have finished the subject of the deacons, but he's still talking about them. So what I'm telling you is this, context suggests it is the wives of deacons. And we know this, the same Greek word must be translated wife in verse 12, the husband of one wife. We know women can serve in the church because, ladies, we also know that otherwise nothing would ever get done. Can I get an amen on that? The evidence is when Angie leaves. But if this is about the wives of deacons, Paul is telling us they must be ladies who are respected. A wife who has control over her motivations, not someone who slanders or accuses, not a malicious gossip. Because why? Slander is the devil's work. It divides and it hurts people. It destroys churches. 
People who gossip create division, hatred, suspicion. They have uncontrolled speech. They spread bad rumors, half-truths. Boy, those are dangerous and always critical. They're the type of people that always have suggestions of what you could do better, but never willing to do it themselves. These are people who lie about others. And these people, if they don't get their way, if they're not catered to constantly, they will eventually leave. But the only question is, how many people will they take with them? See, a leader does not lie about people. He doesn't bring false accusations about people. And a deacon's wife should be trustworthy. People can count on her. And the deacons must be men who have one living wife, not divorced and remarried. A one woman man who knows how to stand before his family and leads them to follow Jesus Christ. And his family respects him for his walk. Verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is Christ Jesus. Most people don't know about this man, Samuel Langley. In the early 20th century, there was a lot of people that were chasing the dream of flight. Now, Samuel, he had some good things going for him at this point. He was given $50,000 by the War Department to figure out his flying machine. It's a lot of money back then. Money was no problem for him. He held a seat at Harvard and worked at the Smithsonian. He was very well connected. He knew all the big minds of the day. He hired the best minds money could buy. And the New York Times was foolish, just like it is today. They followed him around everywhere, and people were rooting for him. So how come we've never heard of Samuel Langley? Well, because of these two guys. A few hundred miles away in Dayton, Ohio, Orville and Wilbur had nothing of what some might think is the recipe for success. They had no money. They paid for their dream with the proceeds from their own bicycle shop. The New York Times most certainly did not follow these two guys around. But here was the difference. Orville and Wilbur were driven by a cause, by a purpose, by a belief. They believed that if they could figure this machine out, this flying machine out, it could change the course of the world. Samuel Langley was different. What was his motivation? He wanted to be rich. He wanted to be famous. He was in pursuit of the results. He was chasing after the riches. But look at what happened. See, the people who believed in the Wright brothers' dream worked with them with blood, sweat, and tears. The others were just working for a paycheck. It's often said that the Wright brothers, when they went out, every time, I love these guys so much, every single time they would take five sets of parts with them because that's how many times they figured they would crash before supper. I can get behind that action right there. Eventually, on December the 17th of 1903, you know that the Wright brothers took flight, and it wasn't even widely known for a few days. And when the Wright brothers took flight, Samuel Langley, he just quit. He quit because his motivations were wrong. He didn't have to quit. He had money. He had fame. He had good people working with him. He could have said, hey, guys, that's amazing what you just did. It's an amazing discovery, and I'm going to try and improve upon it. I'm going to try and get on board and make it better. But he didn't. Why? Because he didn't get rich. He didn't get famous. So he quit. There's no one rich and famous in the church of Jesus Christ. Not in the eyes of Jesus. 
Only those who are rich in his grace and only those who are faithful in his work because he was first faithful to us. But it comes down to motivation. See, some of the best deacons, most faithful Christians I have ever seen, served with, never had a title. Never had a title. But I've also seen plenty of men with titles that do not know how to serve. You don't need some ordination service, some certificate to do the work of a servant. Because the heart of the man of God that is a servant is only living to hear those words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. God's going to give you the recognition and glory. I've had this thought for a lot of years, probably better than a decade now, about ministry. And I've never seen anyone else vocalize it until this past week. And I came across a quote by A.W. Tozer. And I saw it in print, and I can't believe it because it's so amazing. It's like the guy stole my brain 100 years ago. Here he goes. Here's what he said. A true and safe leader is likely to be one who has no desire to lead. No desire but is forced into a position of leadership by the inward pressure of the Holy Spirit and the press of the external situation. Guys, that's why I'm here. I didn't sign up for this because I really want to be a pastor. I signed up for this because God led me down this road where there was a need. I agree with this man completely on this because people see a need like this and they feel it because it needs to be done and it's the right thing to do. And then Tozer went on, he continued, I think there was hardly a great leader from Paul to the present day except those drafted by the Holy Spirit for the task and commissioned by the Lord of the church to fill a position he had little heart for. I believe it might be accepted as fairly reliable rule of thumb that the man who is ambitious to lead is disqualified as a leader. See, this is part of what Paul is talking about in verse 13. Those who have served well, not for glory, but those with a good standing and a great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So there's no idea, this is going to surprise you, there's no Robert rules of order in the scriptures. There's also no idea in scriptures of a man sitting on a board and serving for a certain number of years as a deacon. Can't find that in the Bible. I'm bursting your bubble today. But instead, the idea is when the need arises in the church and when there's men qualified, appoint them until the need is no longer there. Genius. The idea is to look to the reward in Christ. The idea is that there's a certain amount of respect that comes in the church when you see someone give up their free time, their free time to serve for the glory of Jesus Christ and for his church. Because it's a humble ministry, selfless, Christ-like service. And you can tell whether you're becoming a servant by how you act, how you respond when people treat you like dirt, when people treat you like a servant. Because when you serve and no one appreciates it, which happens, it gives you a solid gut check and it makes you ask the question in your heart of hearts, why are you doing it? Are you doing it for your own attention and glory or for the glory of God? See, I believe Scripture is telling us that Christ uses these experiences to build in us confidence, assurance, and boldness in the faith. If you want to grow in your faith, be prepared to serve and be prepared to be unappreciated this side of heaven. But this takes us back to Christ, to depending on him and his word, to fellowship with the Savior, where our true confidence is found.
And then Paul tells Timothy, starting in verse 14, he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, where was Paul at this point? He's over in Macedonia. Timothy's in Ephesus. Ephesus. Paul hoped to join Timothy soon. But in case he couldn't make it, Paul wrote to Timothy with a message. He told Timothy that belonging to God presupposes the idea that we are to live as his people. So he's saying, behave yourself, church. Behave yourself, church. Because the church is the house of God, not the building, but the people. The people. In the Old Testament, God manifested his presence by dwelling in the tabernacle made by Moses and the temple built by Solomon. God was still omnipresent, of course, still everywhere present, but he manifested his presence in the life in the nation of Israel. And then when Jesus walked the earth in his earthly ministry, he called the second temple the house of God the Father, John 2.16. But in this age, right now, today, God manifests himself, how? Through his people. Each of us serves as the temple of God. And this can change how you walk with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And 1 Peter 2.5 tells us, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Friends, we are the church of the living God. The church of Jesus Christ is God's instrument today in this age. We are his assembly. We are his called out people, his gathering. We serve the living God. The church is to sustain the truth of Jesus Christ. It is not, as some say, that the church is the source of the truth that no one can know the truth apart from the church. That's not Paul's meaning. That's a dangerous teaching. The church is to support the truth. We hold it up is the idea. You see, there's two architectural metaphors that are present here in the text that the people in Ephesus would have gotten, would have understood, that helps us to understand the relationship of the church to the truth. First, the church is the pillar Remember that in Ephesus, the temple of Diana there had 127 pillars that were high. They went up 60 feet, which supported their roof. And that roof was huge. It was bigger than a football field. It was 425 feet by 225 feet. Big roof. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And Paul is using this concept of a pillar and telling us that believers in Christ hold up the truth of Christ in each generation. And I find it fascinating that we are told and promised in Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Second, Paul tells us the church is the ground of the truth. The church of Christ is the firm foundation or support of the truth, highlighting the need of the church to protect the truth of Christ's word and to proclaim it. Ephesians 2.20 tells us the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. See, it's the reason the church is to proclaim the word of God. The church is not given the task 
of giving pep talks about the Word of God or self-help motivational talks about the Christian life. We are to proclaim the Word of God. And so if that bores you, I'm sorry. Take it up with God and the God who wrote the Scriptures. I don't care. The Word of God is to be taught in every church. A church does not grow through addition, but through the nutrition of the Word of God. We're to hold it up high. We are to protect it. We are to defend it. We are to proclaim it. And then we are to live it. So look at what Paul does in Timothy next. This is great. Verse 16. He says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Without controversy or with common confession is the mystery of godliness. The mystery centers in Christ and in his relationship to his people. The mystery spoken of is coming up in the next words of the verse. The recognition that God the Son became a man and the divine man, Jesus Christ. He died and he rose again. And it acknowledges our identification with him through regeneration. It is a mystery that God has made his plan known to us through the special revelation of the New Testament. Now we think, most people think, and I agree with this, that Paul was quoting part of a first century hymn that proclaimed this message. How great is this? Here's a find. This is awesome. Recorded right here in the Bible, we have a part of a hymn from the first century church. But note that this confession, this hymn of faith, It's for believers. It's for believers in Jesus Christ. Because only believers in Jesus Christ can believe these things to be true. So think of the theology, the deep theology. You didn't get it on Christian radio, so you're going to get it this morning. The theology of this early song, it moves from his incarnation to his ascension. God revealed Jesus Christ in flesh, in human nature at his incarnation, because the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is a central fact of the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit vindicated his claims in his resurrection. Angels worshiped him after his resurrection and after his ascension into heaven. His disciples proclaimed him to the people of the world by the preaching of the gospel. And those who receive the gospel believe on him and God received Christ back into glory after his ascension. Now, the ascension of Jesus Christ, that's a pretty awesome thing right there. It's important, too, because the ascension of Christ gives us assurance that he's going to come back. He's going to come back for us, that he is who he says he is. It is the proof of his power and his claim on our lives. And I think that Paul included this hymn to challenge us to look at our lives and how we live in the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite stories that comes from church history is of John Eglin. Now, this is a man that most people haven't heard of. This was a man who had never preached a sermon before in his life, but he had a problem one day because a snowstorm kept the pastor from making it to church. It was January 6th of 1850, and when John woke up that morning, the whole town had been buried with snow. But John did what he had to do. He walked six miles through the snow, and John was the only deacon in the church to show up in this small little country church. Now, he wasn't a preacher. He knew that. He wasn't called to that. That wasn't his ministry. 
But he was faithful, and that meant that on that particular Sunday morning, he preached the best he could. He did his best. He only had 13 people show up on that day, 12 members and one visitor, a 13-year-old boy who honestly was just ducking in, going into the church to escape the cold snow. It's honestly the only reason he was there. Some of the people suggested, let's just go home. Let's call it quits for the day. John refused. The preaching fell to him, even though he'd never done it before. It showed it wasn't a great sermon. It was not going to go down as one of the world's best. His sermon was only 10 minutes long, and it was rough. And the text that he picked was Isaiah 45, verse 22, that says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Gathering a bit of courage, John looked straight at the young boy that had showed up, and he said, Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. That's aiming a sermon, by the way. That young boy did look up to Jesus for new life in him, but no one could have seen ahead of time. No one could have appreciated the significance of what had taken place on that morning because the young man who received Jesus Christ on that snowy, awfully cold Sunday morning was none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the man who has often been called the Prince of Preachers. He became the pastor of London's Metropolitan Tabernacle when he wasn't even 30 years old. The building he preached in could hold 5,000 people, but the sermons were straight from the Word of God. They were so powerful that the crowds of people would line up outside just trying to hear his sermons. And there was also a hunger in that day for the teaching of the Word of God. But you see, it all started on a snowy, cold Sunday morning with a deacon who was not called to preach, but he did his best before God when the need was present. Because, hear this, being faithful means being committed to what God has for us, whether the task is big or whether the task is little, whether it's a job we feel like doing or not. One faithful deacon doing what needed to be done, never one saying, it's not my job, or God didn't gift me to do this. There was a need, and John filled it, and God used this to build a work that would change the souls of a generation, impacting all of us today. See, that's a leader, isn't it? And that's a servant of God. A leader is someone who is always growing in their faith in Jesus Christ. A person of honesty and integrity. A leader is someone who makes others better. Making someone else better in their faith. A leader has a genuine interest, not a hypocritical, fake, counterfeit, smile on Sunday morning type interest, but a real genuine interest in others. He encourages others, strengthens others. See, a leader responds to his own failures. He knows when he blows it and acknowledges them before others. A leader does not permit grumbling from himself or from others. A leader does what is right instead of what is popular. A leader's a servant, so learn to be strong in the faith, strong in your walk in Jesus Christ, but not rude. Learn to be kind, but not weak. Live with a quiet strength. Be kind enough to tell people the truth from the scriptures. Be bold in the faith, but don't be a bully. No one likes a bully. Learn humility, but that doesn't mean you have to be timid. There's a balance. Be proud of who God has made you to be. Be proud of your faith in Jesus Christ, proud of your family, proud of your church family, but don't be arrogant. 
There's a difference between taking pride in who God has made you to be and being prideful. And one of the worst things that could happen to you in the life of the church is to be arrogant and not even aware of it. This is the ignorance of pride. Smart and arrogant is bad enough. Ignorant and arrogant is a dangerous combination that's not going to get you far. There is a way that God expects us to conduct ourselves when we come together as a church. Ask God to help to work in your life. Be responsible with what he's entrusted to you, whether it's something big or something small. So just make your focus on worshiping him, serving him. Make your focus on looking for the job that he's given you to do. Live in honest faith, a pure faith before him. Choose to live in his righteousness by his strength and learn that if you're going to be used by God, guess what, friends? He's going to take you places you didn't think you'd have to go. He's going to take you through struggles in life. He's going to allow things, bad things, things to happen to you, and he's going to bring you through things that are meant to make you grow, that are meant to make you stronger and more useful in his hands. But let him mold you. Let him mold you. Because the bottom line is that you're never going to be a great leader and great servant until you first learn to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13 teaches us this, and we'll close with Hebrews 13. It says, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.